You're listening to the profession's greatest physical therapist, Their Past, Our Future podcast. We're your hosts, Ethan Mitchell and Joey Stewart, first-year physical therapy students at Angelo State University. This is the podcast that is made to inspire pre-PTs, SPTs, and current physical therapists to become the greatest versions of themselves, physically, mentally, academically, financially, and spiritually. Let's get into it. To their past, our future, and today we are excited to have on very own Dr. Kendra Nix from Angelo State University. She is our professor in our DPT program. Great. How you, yeah. How are you doing today, Dr. Nix? I am great. Thank you. Awesome. And one question I just want to start off with is, what's something that you're thankful for? You know, Ethan, that's a great question. And today, I'm actually thankful for quite a bit. I'm thankful for my family primarily. Um, My daughter has a seven month old, so I have my first grandbaby. And I'm very thankful that she lives close enough that I get to spend pretty much every day with them. Um, My son and his girlfriend live close as well. Um, My husband, I'm just thankful for all my family. Those are great things to be thankful for. I know, and that's great that they all live close together too. It is. It's it's new for us. We haven't had that till this year, so it's been kind of nice. Yeah, I I can't remember where I was talking about this with, but I feel like um, like you know back then it was common for a lot of families to kind of like stay close together, mm-hmm. whereas nowadays you hear about like families like being all in different states and whatnot. So it's definitely nice to see families like staying close knit yeah. or whatnot. My, my son moved to Denver for a while. He didn't like it. So <laughs> he came back and we're we're really grateful to have him back close by. That's awesome. Um so first thing I just want to open up with and I know this is something you're passionate about and that you preach to us a lot about in class is um pain science. So <laughs> I do preach a lot about pain in general and understanding pain because I think it's really important for us as clinicians to have a really deep understanding of one, what is pain? Two, how does pain work in the body and what's the function of pain? And then three, to be able to um, relay that deep understanding on a level where patients can understand um, because I think it's really important for our society we have gotten into this, you know, pain is bad. We don't, we want to be pain free. Mm-hmm. And I think we've kind of lost touch with the fact that pain is actually a survival mechanism and it's a very important function, even though it can get twisted and become a disease process more than just a symptom of either damage or potential damage. Yeah. I really like that point about how we can get hung up on wanting to be pain-free as, you know, pain's, you know, a really great thing because, you know, if I didn't have pain, I could be sitting on a tack and not know it, you know. Yeah, and I think a great case for that and something maybe you could use to explain to patients is maybe take diabetic neuropathy for Mm. an example and how they've lost the ability to feel pain and they can end up with blisters or huge yeah. sores that they don't even know about that can cause lead to amputations. Yeah. So without that pain mechanism, we, it can lead to much greater. That's a, a fairly common, well-known example. There are rare cases of um, folks who are born with a genetic um, 
fault, I guess you would say, where they just don't feel pain, and their life expectancy is much, much shorter. Yes, mm -hmm. and funny you mentioned, I actually met someone who had that condition outside of a grocery store in Lubbock at Market Street. And Interesting. I just <laughs> okay, I have to know, how did you... How did that come up? <laughs> you know, that's a really good question. Did you run over with your cart and he didn't did know? Did they have it? a shirt that said, I have this condition? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, he has to take out my cart and then, yeah, I think like, I don't know, uh, like the cart rolled over his foot and I was like, oh, that must have hurt. He's like, no, I actually don't feel pain. And they got me. That's... What? I was like, what What do you mean? And then we, I had a bunch of questions for him, but he's like, all right, dude, I got to get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh my so... gosh. So... You know, kind of going along with that, um, I feel like it used to be very commonplace for us to think that pain should stop at a certain point in the recovery process. Yeah, and you just gave me a little eye roll as you said that. Um, so just talk to us a little more about that aspect. So in a normal, acute pain situation, we do have, you know, the alarm gets set off we have pain that has alerted us either to potential damage or some damage. And as that danger is removed or the tissues begin to heal, normal process should be the pain diminishes, not flicks on and off like a light switch, but diminishes over time and, and reset back to a normal baseline. <clears throat> what Where it becomes more of a disease process is when that um, pain doesn't diminish and there's plethora of reasons that that can happen. There's uh, a lot of neuroscience behind that have looked at um, the, the physiologic mechanisms and a lot of it has to do with neuroplasticity. Mm. So if you think about how, you know, we're, we're one of the most learning capable species. We have the ability to learn language, to learn movements, to learn music, to learn all of this stuff. And, and that is because our brains are very plastic. Mm -hmm. On the dark side of that is our brains have the ability to learn pain as well. And that's where the, the, the you know, pain as a symptom kind of starts to switch over into pain as a disease. And it's the plasticity that the brain and the nervous system has learned pain. And it is the more it gets ingrained, the deeper those ruts get. And I don't know if I don't know if I've ever said this in class, but what what fires together wires together. And so the more you get those firing of those neurons into the brain produces pain, then those um, pain maps become more solidified. Yeah, and I guess with chronic pain patients, they probably have just highways to you know those pain pathways, whereas a regular person may have like, I guess you could say just a smaller trail. A county road or, or a county. bike trail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and it has to do with um, <clears throat> how the nerves fire. So if you think about your, and this is kind of getting deep into neuroscience, um, if you think about your myelinated nerves, your A and and those types of fibers that are light touch and temperature, those typically move very fast and they shoot off and they send their signal and they move on. Mm -hmm. The non-myelinated, the C fibers and so on, are the ones that are slower, but they're bigger and they um, 
relay more information and they can be persistent in relaying that information. Yeah, I see that. So if you think about, and maybe I don't remember if we talked about this in class, those fibers that do light touch. When you put your shorts on in the morning, you can feel that you have your shorts on. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have a you know, seam or something, but as the day goes on, those nerves either stop firing or you have a central mechanism either from the spinal cord or the brain that shuts that down right. because it deems that information's not important. But let's say you put a new pair of shorts on and there's a tag in the back that is irritated, has a you know a little sharp edge or something. Mm -hmm. That's going to keep irritating and it's going to fire different neurons and your brain is going to keep asking about, okay, what is that information? What is that information? And it's going to keep firing. And that's kind of how this two different systems work. Definitely. And I love that you mentioned kind of earlier, like how powerful the brain is and how learning adaptive we are, um, even without realizing it. Um, so in that though, we can definitely use that aspect to kind of unlearn. Exactly. And yeah. I, wanted, I wanted to ask you if you could elaborate on that more. Oh, that's a great question. And that, I like that. So yeah, because our brains are plastic, we can, we can develop those big highways that are ingrained. You know, you, everybody always says, well, once you learn how to ride a bike, you never forget it. Well, to some degree, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> You've developed that map, that nervous system map. But we can unlearn. We can, um, because it's plastic, we can change those pathways back. And it takes long time. Obviously, this is not like you know, doing a manipulation and, oh, I, I put my spine back together and I can move on about my day. Well, so maybe manipulations are a piece of that puzzle because what you have to do is, if you think about all of the different brain areas that are involved with pain, I believe there's 13 of them and I believe nine of them are in the conscious part of the brain. And so in your thinking, in your memory, in your auditory, in your... Um, what's this? Olfactory. Hmm. Your nose? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All of those things, you have some nerves in those centers that produce pain, but then they also do other things. And so how can you take away those nerves that are producing pain and make them focus on what that part of the brain actually does? And so all of the different things. And, and anytime you have like a pain experience, especially for those who have chronic pain, some of the new research is looking at what can I do to activate that center of the brain or one of those centers of the brain or maybe three of those centers of the brain to make it focus on what his other job is besides pain. So smelling pleasant odors, um, looking at pleasant pictures, um, thinking about um, actually just thinking about what are those centers and trying to imagine decreasing the, the fire, if you will, mm -hmm. in those centers. So it's a lot of cognitive stuff, and that's why cognitive behavioral therapy is, is actually really beneficial to these folks. Although we're not psychologists or therapists by any means, we do have some ability to help patients change their behaviors. And so we can incorporate some of those cognitive things into our therapy along with movement because the movement, you know, the motor system, the sensory motor cortex is also part of that map. And so if we can incorporate movements into that 
then we can change the mapping. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it, it definitely did. I mean, I just kind of think, you know, kind of like what you said, like these things have multiple responsibilities mm-hmm. and they can't handle them all at once. Right. So why not take advantage of those other aspects of things like the pleasant odors like you said that really caught my eye and kind of makes me want to go sniff a candle now well so you know there's people talk about like essential oils and what have you Mm -hmm. and oh that's bogus well it 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 has a purpose i don't Mm -hmm. think it's the purpose that some people promote it to be Mm -hmm. but i think it does have a purpose in if that odor smells pleasant to you then you're activating that center of the brain to produce pleasure and taking the pain out of that center of the brain, thereby changing that map. Exactly. It's not like a hard science biochemical component of the essential right. oil. It's just more of the it's essence the of it being there. Yeah. Um, so, kind of just thought of this question now. Um, let's say in five years, where would you like to see the role of a physical therapist as far as like the pain science and the cognitive things be? Well, that's a good question. You know, I think we're actually set up probably better than most um, healthcare providers to be in that space. Obviously, psychology is huge. The problem we have right now is a lot of folks don't have access to mental health care. Mm-hmm. Or they don't have funds for mental health care. They don't have insurance that provides mental health care. And so they don't have access to those providers that really are good at doing cognitive behavioral therapy. So actually, I think we're set up really well to do that. I think, mm-hmm. you know, us and OTs are probably the the next health care provider that, that get the quality time with patients. Physicians don't get it. They just don't have that time with mm-hmm. their patients nursing in an acute care setting or maybe in a home health setting but again they don't spend the same kind of time with a patient that we do Um, I would really love to see um, pain taught to other healthcare providers besides physical therapists I was listening to um, some information on it the other day Dr. Rachel Zoss, she's a psychologist that does a lot she's she's a self-proclaimed pain nerd and I, if I, I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say in the 90%, like close a high 90% of medical schools have zero pain science taught to physicians. Wow. I would really love to see that change because part of what we're doing right now as physical therapists is unteaching some of the nocebo things that happen when the patient goes to a physician Mm -hmm. and they tell them oh this is the worst x-ray i've ever seen or you have degenerative disc disease Uh i'd really love to see some of that change in language of how we talk to patients about their problems and really address as a whole the three components of pain which is the bio which we're all really good at doing but it's only a third of it we have to address the psychological which I think we're set up really good to do. The problem is the social, and that's a that's a bigger issue for those folks who are in a lower socio- socioeconomic status and they don't have the financial support or they don't have the health care, they don't have access to health care. So I think actually to answer your question in a little more direct, I think it would be great for us to build our telehealth to provide more access to those folks who who aren't in an area 
where um, they can sit down with a therapist. Because I think for pain, we could do a lot via telehealth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've seen or heard about research that came out recently where telehealth providers are getting similar outcomes in patients with pain as people in person. So even sometimes without the manual therapy component, you can still get great results, you know, through yeah. education and teaching. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I just think about a lot of the um, stories that y'all tell us in class, you and Dr. Villers both, just about how much you can gain from an interview, not just about the patient self, but like just letting them feel heard and whatnot. Like that addresses the pain more than people there think. Is, <clears throat> there is a lot of research in um, just that sitting down, looking a patient in the eye, letting them know that I have heard you, I know you're in pain, and I want to do what I can to help you. There's some pretty good research that that can alleviate even maybe up to 50% of pain. In some patients, it's not consistent. That's the therapeutic alliance that I think you guys mentioned Mm -hmm. class, a good amount. Yes, a good amount. Yeah. Day, daily. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm curious on building therapeutic alliance, you know, I think manual therapy and touch itself is a great way to do it. Um, but outside of that, or how do you think is a, a good way to continue building therapeutic alliance? Outside of just being, um, doing manual therapy? Yes. Kind of like what I mentioned, you know, you need to be present when you're doing your evaluation or, or at least appear to be present, <laughs> right? If you So body language is huge. And, and people have underestimated the power of body language. But I want you guys to imagine if you walked into my office with a question and I sat here with my arms crossed, closed off, how, how comfortable do you think you would be asking me a tough question? Scared. <laughs> See what I'm saying? But if I sit here and, and I... Honestly, if I mirror your posture, mm-hmm. there's a lot of rapport building mm-hmm. in mirroring. Patients don't even know that they're responding to it, but they do. Mm-hmm. And so if you can, it, I think body language is huge. I think, um, you know, the questions that you ask is huge. I think, you know, if you if you have a script of questions and you you're obviously sticking to that script and not hearing their answers and going, oh, okay, so what you're telling me is this. Now, what do I think about this? As opposed to, okay, you told me that next question doesn't have anything to Mm -hmm. do with what you just told me. That is part of it as well. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, that was great. I especially like the body language because I think that's something that we don't really think about much. And if we think about it more, we can use it as a very powerful tool. (laughs) I think about body language a lot, and it's interesting. I recently... Um, was visiting with my husband and we were he was angry and upset not at me but something at work and he you know he's got his arms crossed and his head is tilted and and I kind of did that back to him and he kind of relaxed and he calmed down and mm. so I don't mm. know. interesting <laughs> so it's just like a, a empathetic response and mm-hmm. that's stuff I've been dealing with in the past year or two I realized how much power there is in that um, there is patients, friends, any setting for that matter. Um, Absolutely. And I think about a lot of kind of how the shift in society has been lately. Um, you know, back then it used to be you're supposed to shove everything down. Like if you're hurting or whatever, you keep it there. Yeah, I, you know, and I'm from that era, 
So I, I, I have lived that. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've realized that mental health is health too. And how much truly mental health affects physical health. Mm-hmm. On a physiological basis, really, truly, there are physiological changes when you have mental and emotional stresses. A simple example, big practical exam coming up. You're very nervous. You're anxious. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you feel walking into the classroom. A little shaky. Shaky. So it affects your nerve, your nerve, your yeah. musculoskeletal. I think my breathing is more shallow. So it affects your respiratory. Chest yeah. is a little tight. <laughs> get nauseated, you know, you're not hungry, right? So that emotion has a physiological effect. Granted, Mm -hmm. short-lived for the most part, but imagine having that kind of stress every single day for a month because you've hurt your back and you don't know if you're going to get to work and Mm -hmm. you don't know if insurance is going to pay and you don't know what's wrong with your back. And that's how the emotions of pain effect and can prolong that um, chronic pain for sure i feel like that's something we're only scratching the surface on i mean we know you got that system you know we know stress just affects our immune system in general like no telling what other effects can be had just from life circumstances yeah and so and i don't think we talked about this in class so much because i didn't have time to cover all of the neurophysiology of pain but the immune system and pain are very closely tied together because of your neuro matrix, right? The extracellular matrix, the glial cells, mm-hmm. those all have a response to immune um, changes. And when immune changes happen, those the extracellular matrix propagates the firing of nerve cells and propagates. So it, it it's like lighter fluid on the fire of chronic pain. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect uh, analogy for that. Yeah. Well, I actually had a question coming in that I haven't been able to answer for a long time. I've always been curious about it. So low back pain, super prevalent, one of the most common types of chronic pain. Would you agree? Very much so. Okay. So my question is, why is it the low back that is the chronic pain and not like chronic wrist pain or chronic shoulder pain? You know, I think those can happen for sure, but probably just a lot less commonly. They can, yeah, for sure they can. I, You know, I don't know that I've ever really thought about that. So I would say low back pain and headaches are probably the two most prevalent chronic pain things. Hmm. Um, and then headaches can be divided up into a whole different bunch of other categories. But nonspecific low back pain, I think a lot of that has to do with, okay, seriously, how many times have you ever done something and tweaked and felt, ooh, I felt that in my back? Right? A good amount of times. A good amount of times. The reason that goes away for you is because you don't have a fear attached to it. Mm. Right? You know, backs heal, muscles heal. A lot of folks don't understand that or they don't have that history. Maybe mm-hmm. their dad had back surgery and was crippled for the rest of their mm. rest of his life. You read stories or you Google back and back pain mm-hmm. and you read you see horribly scary pictures about a bulging disc that's red and mm-hmm. painful. So I think that's part of it yeah. is the, our society's view of back pain yeah. and how debilitating it can be. That's a good or, point. You know, but that's what I'm, yeah. yeah, anyway. I think I've heard before that the prevalence of back pain is like drastically different, like another country, like I think Japan. And 
um, I think, I don't know, many Americans kind of have a narrative about back pain. It's like, oh, don't, you know, bend over to pick something up or you're going to hurt your back. And I think that's something that may play a role like you're talking it about. It starts in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Step on a crack, break your mother's back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So, I mean, really and truly, I don't, and I've read those studies. And is it is it prevalence of back pain or is it prevalence of people seeking help for back pain? Mm. Because the mindset's different. Oh, yeah, I've been laying in bed for two days because I have the flu. My back hurts. Duh. Or, yeah, I bent over and picked something up and I my back hurts today. Well, I probably just strained a muscle. I'm going to go on about my business and I'll be fine. It's the mindset that leads you either to that recovery cycle or that fear avoidance cycle. And I think you're right. In our society, we are very much, oh, I need someone to fix this for me. Mm-hmm. Chiropractors, surgeons, pop, you know, prescriptions. Yeah. The quick fixes. Passive quick fixes mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, and I, I don't know much about, you know, the society in Japan right now, but I, I'm guessing they probably have a lot of manual laborers and they don't have time. They don't, they're, they're not the ones that are, oh, I, I don't know. I just think, yeah. I think it's this, a societal image of what healthcare should be. Yeah. I totally agree. And kind of to touch on what you said earlier, like us as physical therapists, um, we are in a grand position to do that. Mm. Um, between just how much we see these patients, how much we get to know them, um, how much we as humans have to move in our daily life, like the amount of influence we can have on that mm-hmm. is tremendous. Yep. So that brings me to our final question. What is your definition of a great physical therapist? Did you already ask me? Somebody asked me this. May have. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know, Joey, where does the list end? <laughs> um, obviously, I think someone who can develop a rapport with their patient. Right. Mm-hmm. Someone who truly has care and empathy for their patient. I think I think lifelong learning is crucial because I know from my perspective, I've been doing this 27 years. I used to do ultrasounds and hot packs with everybody. And now my mindset has changed. I used to tell patients, oh, don't bend over your back, you know. So I think lifelong learning is crucial mm-hmm. to understand the new research and and what we what we didn't understand 20 years ago how we understand it now mm-hmm. um, so I think empathy I think lifelong learning and then I think um, the other big piece of that is and I'm, I'm blanking on a word here um, ethical right someone who is who has the greater good in mind and not just in it for their own paycheck yeah those are the three big ones. I mean, I could That's go huge. on and on about manual skills or whatever, but. I think those are great foundational pieces for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you two are well on your way to being great physical therapists. Well, I appreciate uh, that. So Thank much. you so much. <laughs> yeah. But we just want to acknowledge you for your time and talking to us a little bit more about pain. This is fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I enjoyed this. I'll be happy to do it again if you want to talk okay. about something else. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Well, we could dive more into I could teach you more about the actual neurophysiology. Yeah. We can just have a Dr. Nish Chronicles, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually just got a new book. And then I got another new textbook, too. But this one is kind of cool. And I'm, I'm 
I actually just accidentally ran upon this neuroplastic transformation. Nice. It's designed for patients, but it has a corresponding website that has animations of some of the images in here, and I haven't really finished it, but you know, I've read, I've probably read to here. Yeah, that's where I am. Nice. Um, but it, this is a really good book. Anything you can get by Adrian Lowe, David Butler, Rachel Zoffness. Mm. Um, those are the big ones. Joe Niche, N-I-J, I can't remember how to spell his name, has a book also, uh, and I do have a digital copy of it, but it's a, it's a deep dive. If you want some really deep neurological things. And then um, some, some more on the lighter side, lighter reading, there's um, pain, Painful Yarns by Lorimer Mosley. Mm. And it is stories. So, you know, I, I remember in class when we talked about the dorsal horn and I turned it into an analogy about a bar. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. These are different stories that he uses with patients to turn different neuro, neurophysiology concepts into stories because patients can understand that. Right. People yeah. can understand that better. And remember. Yeah. yeah. So those are, those are all good resources all right. if you... If you have show notes, I can send you links to all that. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. If you could, that'd be awesome. That'd be yeah. perfect. Cool. Um, and on the note of show notes, um, how, are there, well, first and foremost, thank you again for just taking the time to speak You're with welcome. us. welcome. I really enjoyed this. As did we, and as will our listeners. Um, is there any way that, if people just had questions, that they can get in touch with you? Sure, my chance? email. Yeah, um, it's knicks, N-I-C-K-S, at angelo.edu. Perfect. All we right. will get that plugged in. Cool. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Nixon.